This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. And a very good afternoon to you. A little later in the hour today, you're going to catch up with one of the keynote speakers at the huge AgriFutures Evoke Ag Conference, which is underway in Perth today. It started yesterday, continues today. And she's going to tell you that artificial intelligence is coming to a farm near you and it's going to work wonders. It's going to help you increase crop yields. It's going to help you monitor the health and welfare of your livestock and a lot more. You'll hear from her after the news headlines and across to the Bureau of Meteorology just after half past 12 today. Also today, you'll catch up with a cattle industry analyst who's been looking at cattle prices and he's convinced that the cattle prices that we saw last year, which were really low, as you'll be well aware of, we're not going to see prices like that for cattle for at least the next five years, maybe even seven years and beyond. Simon Quilty from Global Agri-Trends will be along shortly. Six past 12. Well, the latest figures from the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development show there's been a recent spike in the number of livestock being transported from Western Australia to the Eastern States. Now, last month in January a total of 104,500 WA sheep and lambs went east, and that is a 201% increase on the December figures and the highest monthly total since November 2022. There's also been an increase in cattle exports to the east. Last month, 5,800 cattle were transferred east from WA. That's a 15% increase on the December figures, but it's a 522% increase on the November figures, and it's the highest monthly total since December 2022. Ben Sutherland is the Vice President of the Livestock and Rural Transport Association of WA. Ben, how much of the WA livestock fleet is now dedicated to trucking livestock east? I'd say it'd be around the half mark, if not a little bit more. And how many trucks would that be, Ben, roughly? Maybe 15 or 20, 30, something like that. Yeah, okay, so a significant amount of the local WA fleet anyway. What impact is that having on requirements here in Western Australia moving livestock around? Oh, it's making it harder. Very, you know, everything has to be, obviously, the industry doesn't stop just because that job's going on. So how busy is it for you, for for example? What difference oh, has we, it made? Yeah, we, we're under pressure all the time. And where are the requirements for you transporting the, the cattle Both and the sheep around? Most abattoirs and especially the bit of dry at the moment, with pressure on from farm to farms. But we're generally servicing abattoirs, live export and farmers. What are you hearing from the farmers, Ben, about the seasonal conditions, the dry conditions? Oh, it's, you know... It's getting pretty tough. It's been tough for them to get rid of sheep. You know, this was nearly the third year. Some of them having trouble getting rid of animals through the system. It is dry. They're running out of water. We need to shift sheep around. You know, feed's getting to a minimum. And what region do you work in? Where are you hearing those sort of stories from? Oh, along the south south coast and the, the bottom end of the Great Southern WA. How is it moving 
cattle and sheep around. You know, it's been heatwave conditions over the last sort of two or three weeks. Uh, what sort of rules and regulations are there around moving livestock in these sort of conditions? We try to avoid the extremities at all times. Obviously, in this last week and last three days, we've canned all our livestock movements due to the heat. Preparing the animals is, is a must, you know. They've got to be hydrated. The shorter the trip and the cooler the time to the day to travel, the better. And are there any That's... specific rules around, you know, if it gets over 40 degrees Celsius, for example, are there rules to say you, you can't load livestock onto the back of a truck or, or not? Oh, it was harvest moving bans. Mostly, isn't there? So you're not out in the paddock anyway or in the yards. Yeah, okay, so, so that just flows on. Yeah. Used with that. yeah. What about for those trucks that are heading east then, Ben? What are the rules and regulation? Because obviously that's a really lo- a long journey compared to just moving livestock around here in the state. What are the rules around that movement of livestock over east? Oh, they're all pretty much the same, mate. As long as the sheep are prepared, probably they're, they're, we work with the agents and the farmers to... Um, Ensure they've they're, they're got a minimum time of feed and water, travel in the coolest. Uh, you know, it's all a little bit of common sense as well. You'd obviously don't load up on a 45 degree day, avoid all the, all the weather extremities that you can. And is it just a straight trip through, or do the livestock get a chance to get off and have a spell at a certain point? We, we definitely encourage them to, to get off and have a spell um, with, with certain facilities in South Australia that are available to us, which also, you know involves, you know, the, the time of feed and water. And that obviously just breaks the trip of, you know, being on the back of the oh, truck for so many hours. Yeah, they, you have to. You have to spell them, yeah. Yep, yeah. They need to spell. And it, is it set to continue? No idea, mate. It's all seasonal and, and, you know, depending on prices and bits and pieces. Yeah, the price is a big factor, isn't it? I mean, it's... Um, a big, uh, huge factor. There's yeah. got to be a fair difference in it for the eastern states to be here. Well, look, I know you've pulled over to have a chat to us this afternoon, so I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, Ben. All right, mate. Thank you. Ben Sutherland, he's the Vice President of the Livestock and Rural Transport Association of WA. They're incredible figures, though, the number of livestock just heading from WA to the eastern states. Uh, looking at last month, those January figures, just to recap, Deep Heard saying that in January, a total of 104,500 sheep and lambs went east compared to 12,500 in January the previous year, which is a whopping 733% increase. Uh, For the cattle, last month, 5,800 went east, compared to 900 head in the year before, January the year before. So that's an increase of 521%. A lot of our livestock heading East, And uh, as Ben was saying, as a result of the really hot conditions, um, you know, there's some, you know, people just using common sense, I guess, around the loading of livestock onto the back of the trucks to get to markets or from farm to farm. And we'll head to Catanning just before the news at one. The number's down uh, reflecting uh, that situation uh, due to those hot conditions. The number's down at Catanning today, I think. Uh, 6,700 sheep and lambs penned for sale, down about almost 4,000 on the previous week. So Tracy Kilner will take you through that uh, just before the news at one o'clock. But just to highlight how dry some parts of the state are right now, a water deficiency declaration has just been announced for Grass Patch 
in the Shire of Esperance. The declaration follows an application from the Shire on behalf of seven farmers in the region. The Department of Water and Environmental Regulation says a water deficiency declaration is implemented as a last resort after continued dry conditions have depleted on-farm and local community water supplies. So water's going to be delivered to previously established tanks at Grass Patch, reducing the distance that farmers need to travel to source emergency livestock water. 13 past 12, you are tuned to the Country Hour on the ABC WA, streaming live on the web and on the podcast as well on the ABC Listen app. Cattle producers are going to be pleased to hear that one industry analyst believes it's going to be at least five years, maybe more, before cattle prices drop as much as they did in 2023. Simon Quilty from Global Agritrends is basing his analysis of some new figures from the Australian Bureau of Statistics, which show the nation's cattle herd is currently in a holding pattern. He says, while that's the story from a national perspective, interestingly, if you break down those national figures from state to state, there's quite a bit of variation. We had, of the number of states in which was contracting the last quarter, there was close to three contracting, I guess, in the last quarter. And today that's jumped to four contracting, two on hold, two now expanding. So we've got Queensland actually improving and Tasmania improving in terms of rebuilding, but the other states still are contracting and it nets out with overall Australia's in a holding pattern. So we're not getting bigger, we're not liquidating. I suppose, does that show that farmers in the industry in general just looking at the weather to see what will happen next? I think you've really got to look at it state by state. And I think it tells me that New South Wales truly was the problematic state, that that was the driest. And we saw, you know, in that August, September, October period, the driest three months on record. But also it tells us where the rain's fallen. And would you believe that, you know, over the last three months, Queensland's rainfall is in their top 10% over the last 120 years. So they've really responded to that November, December, January rain. And interestingly, Victoria sits in the top 2%. We've got one of the second or third highest last three months in Victoria of rainfall on record. I think that figure for Victoria really is an overflow of New South Wales cows coming into Victoria to be liquidated and it's distorted the Victorian figures. Where does this leave the state of the beef market? We saw difficult conditions for farmers in terms of prices they were getting at the end of last year. That turned around around the the turn of the year. Where do we sit now? Well, Warwick, to me, all of this recent rise is on the back of restricted supply. It isn't on the back of strong global markets. So contrary to popular belief that higher exports means better demand, that's not true. In actual fact, throughout all of last year, we took lower prices in all global markets with beef and with lamb and mutton. And we've come off the bottom That's without doubt in the last probably quarter, but we're still hovering at the bottom and we're needing global markets to improve. So the take-home message, Warwick, is we need global demand to pick up. 
I've spoken to you in the past about Australia having the cheapest beef in the world. Is that still the case? No, it's not. I mean, you know, we can find lots of countries, but right now, in actual fact, we are cheaper than Brazil and the US. Today, Australia sits on finished cattle into, um, you know, into the a, a processor of around 390 a kilo live weight. We've got Brazil at 445 for an equivalent size animal and the US at $6. That's Australian dollars? That's correct. So we're not the cheapest, but compared to our major export competitors, we are still cheaper in terms of what farmers are getting for cattle than those nations. Because of that, you're, you see upside in what I producers do. can I, get this year. Warwick, I think... Globally, livestock prices are too cheap full stop, including America, including Brazil and ourselves. And I'm of the opinion about to move into resetting the, the, the market and what I would call the new norm in which we are going to trade at significantly higher levels than what we've seen over the last five years. And as we get into 2025 next year and beyond, we trade at new levels. And with that, I am calling the EYCI, the ECI, to be at around about 1250 in 2026 and 1250 in 2027. Today's price is about 650. Today, the figures showed us on cattle that we've come out at a break even. We're neither building um, or liquidating. But as we go forward, I think the peak in production for beef has now been put in place and hereafter for the next probably five years or longer, seven years, we will not get back to these high levels of beef production. Extrapolating that out, you think the low prices of 2023, particularly for beef producers, is probably the worst they're going to get for the next half decade? Longer. Thereafter. Warwick, I, I have a seven-year average on pricing on the EYCI from 2025 to 2032 at 1050 And if we were to talk in feeder steer prices, my seven-year average for, for 2025 to 32 is 520 Keep in mind today's price is 345 live weight. So a 520 average on feeder steers for seven years from 2025 to 2032. Welcome to the new norm. Simon Quilty from Global Agritrends with Warwick Long, 19 past 12. Moving from cattle to sheep now, and 2023 was a record year for mutton exports from Australia to China, and 2024 is off to a flying start, with the Chinese appetite for older Australian sheep meat continuing to grow. Matt Dalgleish from episode3.net says just under half of all mutton exported from Australia went to China last year. He says Chinese consumers enjoy the fat and flavour of mutton, which is a stark contrast to Australian diners. Yeah, so if you're talking mutton specifically, for last year, we had 97,500 tonne uh, of mutton going to China. So that was the, the strongest uh, year on record by a long stretch, actually. The, the nearest highest um, year was, was 2019 when we did about 81,500 tonne, so significantly above that. 
2019, we immediately think of uh, African swine fever, the beginnings of COVID, and, and China obviously lost a lot of its pig herd. But my understanding was that, that those numbers have rebuilt. So why the, the big demand for mutton? Yeah, that's right. Pretty much it took them about two to three years for them to rebuild that pig herd. And at that time in 2019, their production dropped by about 40%. So it was a massive amount of gap in meat protein that they were making domestically. And obviously that was that was replaced with uh, exports from all places and, and mutton from Australia is one of the key ones. Um, but yeah, you're right, the, the, the pig numbers have increased back to pretty much pre-ASF levels in China. But what we did see through that period when they had ASF was that the Chinese consumer, I guess their tastes for, for different meats uh, increased. Uh, because of the necessity, they they were forced away from pork. It got quite expensive and low supply, so they had to look at alternatives. And sheep meat was a, a, a really good alternative, and particularly mutton, because of the style of mutton being a, a more flavoursome meat and, and the fact that it held up well to the cooking techniques, particularly the uh, hot pot. Um, it's cooked in a liquid and it's cooked slow and, and low heat. Uh, and so mutton being a you know, firmer meat held up very well to that. And so the Chinese consumer has um, has really kind of taken fondly to it. Uh, domestically, we hardly eat any mutton in Australia anymore. Usually 95 to sometimes even as high as 98, 99% of what we produce as mutton gets exported now from Australia. So the average Australian, I don't think these days even knows what it's like to eat mutton. You know, and maybe those older people that, you know, go back two, dec- two decades or so mm-hmm. where, we did, where we did eat about six kilo of mutton per person per year about 20 years ago, a lot of the time it was considered like mutton maybe because it was cooked in a different manner in Australian cuisine, that it's a, it was remembered as being a, you know, very much an inferior meat when it compared to lamb in terms of its toughness. But, you know, if it's being roasted or cooked over a barbecue, the meat behaves differently and it does come out a bit tougher. But when you cook it right, the flavour and, uh, and the texture is exceptional. And, and part of that cooking technique is how they do it in China with that hot pot style. Matt Dalgleish from episode3.net with Joe Prendergast, 23 past 12. Well, Meat and Livestock Australia wants you to keep eating uh, beef and also sheep meat, but it also wants you to give goat meat a go. And we'll launch a domestic industry marketing campaign called Goat Track in a couple of months. Australia is the world's largest exporter of goat meat, But here in Australia, you'd be lucky to find it in your average supermarket, cafe or restaurant. MLA's Graham Yardy says it would be great to get more people thinking about incorporating goat meat into their weekly rotation of dinner ideas. On the local market, you know, we actually only keep a very sort of small amount of the domestic production for local consumption. So from a marketing perspective, we're, we're, we're pretty limited in, in how much sort of funding we have to play with. But um, what we try and do each year is try and work through many of the channels that we're already talking to. So things like food service, where we already do quite a bit of promotion of, of beef and lamb. How can we sort of piggyback on that to talk, talk about goats? Uh, help people understand that. And while it's very hard to reach uh, a lot of consumers uh, that way, we can uh, reach many of the influencers, so people that own restaurants and um, you know make some of the buying decisions to really sort of get goat on the radar. Um, and we see that as the best uh, way to bring goat a little bit more into the, the forefront because what we know is that most people 
have not grown up with goat here, do not think of it as a, a protein um, that they would likely consume. And many people just can't find it. So I guess the, the, the genesis of this program is, well, you know, how can we actually highlight some of the places they can get it? Those people, those places that are already putting goat on the menu, let's try and highlight that a bit and, and show that to other venues as well that goat can be something they put on the menu and hopefully we get a bit of uptick in, in off-take in, in that way. As you were saying, there's such a demand coming from overseas, but why do you think it has been a slower uptake in the domestic market? In some ways, it's got a lot to do with, you know, we, we have fantastic produce here in the, in the sense of, you know, the country has really just been so used to fantastic proteins like our beef and lamb. We're really spoiled for choice here. So, you know, we're actually pretty slow moving when it comes to our repertoires, especially eating at home. You know, if you look at, you know, what's in the supermarket, grocery store now, you know, the, the number one sellers in most categories, even out of meat, are still relatively stable. And so we're, we're reasonably slow to adopt some things. Yes, around the edges, we might try a few new things and our, our taste might change a little bit, but it's pretty slow. Food service is a place where we are more likely to uh, try new things. That's what sort of we feel like makes a lot of sense here as a way to trial it. You know, people always get a bit anxious about cooking something new at home. So, you know, goat falls into that category where people are a bit unsure. Um, oh, well, what do I do with it? Not a lot, not as much content out there about how to um, how to cook with it and just that unfamiliarity. Yeah, I think when most people get in there and realise that, hey, cooks in a lot of ways, a lot like lamb, can have a, you know, much stronger flavour. And that's another thing, you know, for a lot of palates here in Australia, you know, we do like some milder flavours, whereas, you know, you grow up in different parts of the world or you're very much familiar, you know, with spicier foods and the use of different ingredients that give a different flavour profile. You know, we're evolving in that sense, but we sort of, we still reasonably slow to adopt some of those changes. Domestic Market Manager at Meat and Livestock Australia, Graham Yardy, speaking to Lily McCure and trying to get you to try goat meat. 27 past 12, with a former director of a WA piggery has been fined $14,000 for allowing odours to be emitted from the premises because of the mismanagement of waste and pig carcasses. Torben Sorensen was the former sole director and manager of GD Pork, a great southern piggery based at Boscobel near Cojanup, 250 kilometres southeast of Perth. He pleaded guilty in the Perth Magistrates Court on Friday to charges under the Environmental Protection Act. The company, GD Pork, no longer exists, but was fined a total of $700,000 for emitting unreasonable odours and failing to comply with an environmental protection notice in 2017 and 2019. The Department of Water and Environmental Regulations, Ruth Dowd, said the odours coming from the piggery had a severe impact on people living nearby. She said the odour could be smelled from up to 10 kilometres away and residents were forced to shut doors and windows to keep the smell out of their homes and some reported negative impacts to their health. She said management of the site has improved markedly since the new piggery owners took over. 28 past 12. Shortly an update from the newsroom and then it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Still the rain keeps coming from ex-tropical cyclone Lincoln. You heard yesterday that Nicholson Station received 127 millimetres of rain 
And now in the last 24 hours, the town of Halls Creek has received another 120 mils of rain. A flood watch is now in place for the Fitzroy River catchment. Philip Hams is at Gogo Station, which is just near Fitzroy Crossing. He says the river is rising upstream, but he's not too concerned about it. When I look at the river heights this morning, and I'll talk about a 24-hour period, and I've just rounded the figures off. The market certainly uh, some good flows coming that, down that way. We got um, uh, Mino Savvy yesterday was only 400 megs going past the gauge, and this morning we got 40,000. Wow. Um, Mount Winifred, uh, you know, has um, started off at 600 megs yesterday, and we're up to 132,000 this morning. Now, yeah, so. everything's still below flood level, is that right? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, the main benefactor is going to be the Margaret system thus far. But the next 24 hours will, um, uh, you know, sort some of that water out. So lovely aquifer filling water for the groundwater underneath, but nothing to be concerned about if you're downstream. No, definitely. Definitely not um, even, um, you know, the 130-odd thousand megs coming down. The Margaret is, um, is a good flow, no question about that. But it's uh, certainly well within the banks. And where you're sitting at Gogo, are you getting rain there? It's spitting outside, around about 20 mils in the last 24 hours, I suppose you'd say. So not very much, and I'm thinking that you'd be hoping for a bit more. Uh, definitely. Uh, what I've noticed about this change is how, at, at, at this end, I'm not saying Halls Creek end, but this end, how fickle it is. You'd, we're at the paddock um, yesterday uh, planting sorghum, dryland sorghum, and you see a shower come through and you think you have to get out of there. And five minutes later, it's a clear sky. It was very fickle in the, you know, in the front. It may change today. There might be something more solid come through. But yesterday, it was just um, isolated, patchy storms. Phil Hams from Gogo Station at Fitzroy Crossing speaking to Alice Marshall. And the river data he was referring to is provided hourly by DFES. And Phil was referring to the 5am figures. It is 29 to 1. We'll head to the Bureau of Meteorology shortly to see if there's any more rain in that system for parts of the Kimberley and beyond. But first, Jonathan Beale in the studio with the news headlines. Thanks, Belinda. A 23-year-old car thief accused of murdering a serving WA police officer is set to defend himself at trial. Reagan Ashley Chown is alleged to have been behind the wheel when Constable Anthony Woods was dragged under a stolen car in Ascot last year. Constable Woods died in hospital three days later and Mr Chown was charged with his murder. Today he appeared in the Stirling Gardens Magistrates Court via video link and pleaded not guilty. The Australian Federation of Air Pilots has suspended this week's planned industrial action in anticipation of the impact of ex-tropical cyclone Lincoln in the state's northwest. Pilots from Qantas subsidiary Network Aviation have cancelled plans to stop work from Thursday to Sunday at the request of the state government. The government says the suspension will enable evacuation flights from the Kimberley and Pilbara before the storm front hits. 
And the Australian Industry Group is warning higher wages growth could increase the chances of another Reserve Bank interest rate rise. The latest Bureau of Statistics data shows wages grew 0.9 of 1% in the December quarter and 4.2% over 2023. The group warns higher wages will inevitably lead to higher inflation and the RBA lifting interest rates again. More news, Belinda, at one o'clock. Jonathan, thank you for that update. 27 to 1, still to come. From today, the mango industry will no longer be allowed to use methyl bromide to control fruit flies. And that may mean that, say, mango growers in the Northern Territory might not be able to get their mangoes into Western Australia, as they usually do. We'll look into that in a little more detail shortly. We'll head off to Katanning for the results of the sheep market and how artificial intelligence is going to help you farm into the future. That's to come here on The Country Hour between now and the news at one. Right now, off to the Bureau of Meteorology and Luke Huntington with you this afternoon. Luke, let's start in uh, with a look at northern and eastern parts of the state, starting in the north because we've been talking about the rain that's still falling in parts of the Kimberley as a result of um, ex-tropical cyclone Lincoln. Is there more rain on the way with that system? Yeah, afternoon, Belinda. So, um, yeah, the system is very close to the coast or just offshore um, from that far northwestern Kimberley coast, so around Currie Bay at the moment. Um, it's forecast to move um, further offshore during today. But in terms of the rainfall, um, most of the rainfall is sort of um, confined to the far northern Kimberley and the northwestern uh, Kimberley coastal parts, so probably north of Broome today. Um, in those areas, you could get 20 to 40 millimetres isolated a millimetres. Um, through the remainder of the Kimberley, you could still get um, some totals, 20 to 40 millimetres, but they'd be mostly confined to uh, thunderstorms. Um, and then heading into tomorrow, um, we could still see some further falls just on the very coastal parts of that northwestern Kimberley, just as that tropical low does move away. But there's still quite a bit of moisture over that coastline. So we could see those uh, totals again uh, tomorrow. But um, in terms of the ex-tropical cyclone, so as I mentioned, it's near Curie Bay at the moment, expected to move further offshore during today towards the west. Um, and then it'll move parallel pretty much to the uh, the southwest Kimberley Coast and Pilbara Coast, well offshore during tomorrow. Um, but it does recurve towards Friday, towards the west Kimberley Coast. And at this stage, we are expecting the low to become a cyclone, redevelop into a cyclone on, um, on Friday morning. Um, and then it heads towards towards the far western Kim, uh, Pilbara coast so and redevelops into a Category 2 cyclone either late Friday or early Saturday. At this stage, the modelling suggesting it may class, uh, pass close to Exmouth uh, during Saturday as a Category 2 system, so that could mean destructive winds up to 140 kilometres per hour. Um, we do have the, the, our watch out at the moment, so for gales between Roeburn and Ningaloo, that would be starting from early uh, Friday morning. Um, but the main impact will be from that Saturday as it passes possibly passes close to Exmouth. And then um, after that, it could pass close to the Gascoigne coast or just through the inland inland parts. So um, at this stage, a little bit uncertainty whether how far west it does go on that Saturday period, whether it does um, so, sort of straddle the Gascoigne coast or moves further inland. It will just depend on where it does cross the, uh, the coast uh, over the far west Pilbara on Saturday. And just on that, Luke, as far as rainfall goes, you mentioned the winds that could be destructive as a result of that. But what about the rainfall and what sort of range of an area might that fall? 
Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, depending on where it goes, but pretty, pretty much all the heavy rainfall is going to be closer to the system's path, so that will depend on that area. Um, but we are looking at sort of totals around the 40 to 100 millimetres close to the uh, to, to, close to the path, and we could see isolated falls between 150 to 200 millimetres. So certainly some decent falls and obviously heavy falls. Um, we did issue a flood watch uh, this morning for that um, sort of that West Pilbara and the Gascoigne rivers there. So we're not expecting any of the rivers to become um, breach minor at this stage. It's really just for flash flooding um, with, with those totals. The, the actual system is moving pretty quick as it comes through that area on Saturday. So it's not a, it's not a slow moving system, but it'll be um, fairly fast moving. But we could see those type of totals um, during that Saturday and continuing into the Sunday period. And moving into the Southwest Land Division, certainly a, a sigh of relief as far as the temperatures go in uh, many parts of this area. Yeah, especially near the west um, coast and into the southwest, we have seen temperatures drop back into the sort of mid to high 20s. Um, but it's still, yeah, very hot over the parts of the Wheat Belt and the eastern Great Southern today with temperatures in the low 40s. Um, but those temperatures will continue to drop uh, into tomorrow, just as we do have a weak cold front just brushing the southwest corner today. So, And with a new ridge coming in behind it, that'll um, bring up some cooler southerly winds. So um, many parts of the Southern Southwest Land Division will drop back tomorrow into sort of in the low to mid uh, 20s. So the heat will be finally flushed out of that area. Uh, we do have uh, uh, the heat returning temporarily back on Friday. We do have another trough developing near the West Coast. So uh, temperatures through the Central West and Lower West getting into the 40s again, um, but, only, but only temporarily. As I said, that trough does move um, inland on Saturday. So you'll be back into the sort of the low um, to mid 30 temperatures um, through that area. Um, in terms of rainfall for the Southwest Land Division, um, we may see some isolated showers and thunderstorms over the inland parts of the Central West on Friday, um, and then it's probably extending a little bit further south um, to cover most of the Southwest Land Division on Saturday. That's all sort of streaming off the potential cyclone um, as it comes across the Western Pilbara, so it will depend on that. We're not, but we're not expecting sort of any heavy falls over the Southwest Land Division on Saturday. It'd be all sort of um, sort of isolated showers and thunderstorms, probably except for the far southwestern corner. And then on Sunday, uh, we are expecting showers right throughout the Southwest Land Division and some thunderstorms. Again, it will just depend on um, where that low tracks and how much moisture it does bring down to the Southwest Land Division. So can't really mention any rainfall totals at this stage, but um, hopefully we'll get a better idea tomorrow and Friday. All right, look forward to it. Thank you so much, Luke. 21 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Let's take a look at the rainfall figures looking back at the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning with Richard Hudson. And pretty much everywhere in the Kimberley got some rain, so we'll just have 30 and above today. Diggers Rest had 48, Faraway Bay 73, Halls Creek Airport 121, Kachana 33, Columbaroo 68, Lombardina 71, Mullabulla Airstrip 93, Mount Amherst 81, Mount Winifred 41, Nicholson 86, Old Mornington Homestead 31 and Wyndham also recorded 31. Um, due to the risk of fire, some shires in the Great Southern Region have got a total fire ban in place today. So that's the shires of Dumbleyoung, Esperance, Jeremungup, Kent, Lake Grace and Ravensthorpe. 
So today you can't do anything like uh, lighting fires or cooking for camping purposes and that sort of thing. No hot work such as grinding and welding and no off-road driving of four-wheel drives, quad bikes or motorbikes. Again, uh, if you need to figure out what you can and can't do or, or if you need to figure out if your Shire has a total fire ban in place, just search emergency in WA and all the information's there. That's all. Thanks so much for that, Richard. 20 to 1 here on the Country Hour. We'll head off to Catanning and look at the yarding and the prices at the sheep market today. And numbers down a lot, as you can imagine, with the hot conditions. Uh, not so many keen to pack those uh, sheep and lambs on the back of a truck and send them off to market. Pretty stifling conditions. So the numbers were down. We'll check the prices with Tracy Kilner just before the news at 1 o'clock. First, though, from today, the mango industry will no longer be allowed to use methyl bromide to control fruit flies. The decision follows research into the chemical, which indicated it was not suitable for mangoes and did not provide sufficient control for Queensland fruit fly. As a result, the fruit fly-free states of Western Australia, South Australia and Tasmania have updated their import conditions to no longer accept mangoes that have used this treatment. And the same ban will be enforced on plums next month. Leo Scaleris is the president of the NT Mango Industry Association and says growers have now lost two cost-effective options for controlling fruit flies in just the last six months. Well, basically, um, last year we had Demethwaite come off the label and our option going into Western Australia was uh, methyl bromide. That was then had some tests done and uh, found that it wasn't an effective treatment on mangoes and plums in controlling fruit fly. So that's now been taken off the label and we're looking for alternative forms of treatments for entry into some states. So the industry lost the ability to use dimethylate as a post-harvest treatment. A lot of growers then went and grabbed some methyl bromide, and now, as of today, uh, that's been banned. So what are the alternatives from here, Leo? We have uh, CTMO1, which is field sprays with dimethylate and hard green protocol for South Australia. That's not too much of an issue. Uh, entry into Western Australia is a, a larger issue and we have irradiation and vapour heat treatment currently and the department and industry is is looking to get CTM one pass for Western Australia, but that might take some time. I guess you're hoping that's all organised in time for the next mango season. Yes, definitely. Well, the other two forms are uh, an expensive treatment and it also some transport logistics there will cause large dramas trying to swing fruit around the place. So in terms of the bottom line for mango growers, how big of a deal is it to lose first dimethylate as a post-harvest treatment and now to lose methyl bromide? Well, I mean, costs of some of these treatments can go up to $7 a tray, which a lot of growers are just struggling to to clear uh, a few dollars a tray after cost, so it will make the them unviable basically to run. And uh, if they can't go into these other states, then they'll have to 
send the fruit across to other states that don't require entry for fruit fly, which will cause basically a glut in the market and drop the market prices. So, A lot of mangoes uh, go into New South Wales and, and Victoria and, and not much go into, say, WA. Yes, and Queensland as well. So they all have the, the fruit fly of concern. So we don't need any protocols to enter those states. Do you think there will be growers that will put Western Australia in particular in the too hard basket? Most definitely. Most definitely, especially if it'll be a you know, five to seven dollar cost treatment or they'll have to move fruit from Darwin down to Victoria and then across to Western Australia. At least this ban comes in today late February at the end of the, the national mango season. Is that, is that at least something that you've got quite a few months down to, to work De- this out? Definitely, definitely a much better outcome. And uh, we have a few a few teams working hard on trying to get things passed as well as irradiation plants and vapour heat treatment plants looking to help industry out if worse comes to worse and, and we can't get CTMO1 passed for Western Australia. Leo Scaleras, he's the president of the NT Mango Industry Association. He was speaking to Matt Bran. Quarter to one. You're with Belinda Varischetti on The Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. Artificial intelligence is coming to a platform near you and it's going to help you with every aspect of farming from increasing crop yields to monitoring the health and welfare of your livestock. That was the key point raised by Nina Stick, the founder of AI advisory firm Tamang Ventures on the opening day of the AgriFutures Evoke Ag Conference in Perth this week. She says the big tech companies are already quite advanced in developing software that will one day become standard on Australian farms. Like a Microsoft, which already has Microsoft Data Azure for Agriculture, where you take lots of information and data relating to all different kinds of um, uh, inputs from soil sensors to satellite imagery to uh, data and information about weather patterns, which then are just accessible at the point you need to make a decision. So it's taking that historic knowledge and information that a farmer might have about their field and their localized farm, but then also augmenting that with this intelligence that you can harness from a data platform. Will AI be used to increase yields? That is exactly what the hope of a platform like the Microsoft Azure Data Manager for Agriculture is doing, because they basically create this foundational platform which has access to all this data and information from different sources and then it's partnering up with other companies like Bayer which will also have a lot of institutional knowledge and historical data on crop yields or efficiency or crop health and together now with kind of the big data set that Microsoft can bring along with their own institutional and historical knowledge that's exactly how it's being deployed to improve crop yields And again, you kind of take it down further down the chain and you see that Bayer now is also packaging up its data that it's sharing, co-managing with Microsoft to its enterprise customers. So this is why I say for farmers or indeed anybody 
in the world. The thing about AI is that it's simply going to come as a software update to the platforms you already use. So absolutely one of the fundamental use cases in agriculture will be to improve crop yields, but also to monitor the health of your livestock, to be better with precision farming, to understand better how to deploy pesticides, to understand uh, you know, how much carbon is in the earth, whether a soil can be regenerated, all of the things that are vital practices for farmers should be able to be augmented with the use of AI. How is the work of uh, people in agriculture going to change, like the everyday work of what they do going to change with the invent of AI? So I like to think about it as, of course it's going to change, but it's going to be a, another, it's more powerful than a tool, because I think it works both ways. It both is used as a tool, so as, like, as a co-pilot, as an additional almost brain, more data, more intelligence. Um, so specifically on AI as a software that might help farmers make better decisions on crop yields, on precision agriculture, on when to harvest, um, but also in terms of the actual machinery, the robotic side of thing, which is also going to be plugged in. It's going to help with labor shortages. But ultimately, I think that when you think about the deployment of AI and its capabilities and the associated technologies across human endeavors, whether that's agriculture or other industries, at some point it's so profound that it's also going to change us, right? It's going to change us because guess what? We might develop new crops that are more resistant to drought. We will probably figure out how to tackle some of the sustainability issues. We will probably change the nutritional value of the foods that we eat because of how biotechnology and artificial intelligence will allow us to engineer new food modifications, new variations. So it's not only that AI and the applications of AI will change how we work and will make our jobs easier, but at some point we will also become a product of the cumulative changes that are uh, brought upon society and in this context in food production by AI. Nina Schick, an AI expert and founder of Tamang Ventures, speaking to Lucinda Jose. And that last point might have struck a chord with many farmers, AI being used to speed up the development of new crop varieties that require less nitrogen fertiliser and less water, but resulting in significantly better yields. We're not targeting something that is 1x, 2x, 3x, but how you think about having the productivity that improved by 10x, 20x. It's not only about the food security, it's not only about the sustainability, um, but it's also about the farmer profitability. And when you look at this technology, when you look at this kind of product, you can address three things at the same time. Yes, that's the piece that um, they're pretty excited about it. That's Ponzi Trivisvavet, the CEO of Inari Agriculture. She's at the big Evoke Ag Conference currently underway in Perth and she'll also be a keynote speaker at next week's GRDC Grain Research Updates Conference. If you tune in tomorrow, you'll hear how Inari has just managed to raise $875 million 
and some of that money is going to benefit Western Australian grain growers because Inari is collaborating with Perth-based company Intergrain. They're using AI and generic engineering to fast-track seed development. So don't miss that on the Country Hour tomorrow. Eight to one. Well, last week, farmers in Nwangarup and Ongarup culled over 100 feral foxes, cats and rabbits in a push to reduce the impact of feral animals on the land. The cull was run by North Stirling's Palling Up Natural Resources, or the NSPNR, as part of its annual feral tally. Local farmer Jamie Spencer took part in the event. So get teams from around the Narangup Shire to head out and they'll go shoot on various properties and try and cull as many foxes, feral cats and rabbits and then they bring them in in the morning, we have a count, see how much they're eliminated and then there are points allocated to, I think it's five to a fox, three to a cat and one to a rabbit and then that goes into score against a name and then find out who's shot the most and then there's also a prize for heaviest cat and heaviest fox. And uh, have you had a count of the numbers? What, what was brought in last night? I believe there's about over 60 foxes we've caught, only about five cats and 10 rabbits. And what kind of impact does this have on the numbers of feral animals in the region? Is, is 60 a significant number to bring in one night, or is it sort of a, a drop in the pan, so to speak? I still reckon it's a good number to bring in. Uh, there's still a lot of merino or sheep farmers around the area, so they get rid of the foxes or help their lamb survival rates. If it is a low number compared to previous records, we'd hope that would indicate that fox numbers are in the decline. Sheep farmer Jamie Spencer, who works with the North Stirling's Palin Up Natural Resources. Now, these feral animal control days are called red card events. Jackie Lucas is a coordinator with the Wheat Belt NRM. And over the last eight years, she's been keeping an eye on the numbers that have been coming in. In 2016, there were 59% of land managers reported foxes, which has decreased to 54% of land managers reporting foxes in 2022. That's quite a significant decrease in the number of feral foxes that's been reported. Has there been an increased uptake or is there new measures being put in place to control or curb those numbers? Yes, there was a correlating 77% increase in the number of land managers undertaking activities in 2022, a statistically significant increase from 2019. So therefore, more people are controlling foxes, so the apparent levels of foxes are going down. 50% or thereabouts is a number that you pointed to, but that's still quite a significant number of feral foxes. Is there a, a cost that you're seeing to the agricultural sector, You know, one in the damage that these foxes do, but also in the, the cost to producers or, sorry, land managers to actually control them? Nationally, it costs private land producers $147 million to control foxes, and including the loss that foxes have on agriculture, such as predation on lambs and, to a lesser degree, calves of cattle, that adds up to a total of $198 million impact across the country. The cost of foxes to agriculture in Western Australia in the report from November 2023 was $16 million alone. 
Jackie Lucas, red card coordinator with the Wheatbelt NRM. As part of this latest red card event, for the first time, researchers were invited along to slit open the stomachs of the foxes and cats just to see what they've been eating. Natalie Grassi was one of the researchers from Murdoch University. She says the data they've gathered will give them a better understanding of the impact the animals are having in that Nwangarup region. Um, a lot of small mammals are very, very hard to identify on camera trapping and other traditional methods. So being able to cut them out of a stomach and have them in hand is a really good identification method. What are the sort of uh, native animals that you are finding in fox stomachs? Um, so fox stomachs, they tend to eat a lot more native invertebrates, reptiles and smaller mammals. Or for foxes, even things like macropods because they do eat carrion. Cats tend to eat a lot of small mammals, so things like pygmy possums, bush rats, ash grey mice, and a lot of birds, um, especially honey eaters and small-sized birds. You've done a couple of dissections here today. Did you find anything particularly interesting in any of those stomachs? Um, So today's stomachs was mostly invertebrates. So foxes, especially young ones, they like to go out into the paddocks and they eat bugs. It's a particularly easy prey item for those. But I estimate that some of the fox stomachs we'll cut up will be having things like pygmy possums and even snakes in them. How important is it to be doing this particular type of research? Is it an area that's well understood? There have been a lot of diet analyses in the past, not particularly in this region. It is not a very glamorous sort of research, so I think it's very hard to find people to actually do it. But it is super important for trying to figure out which native species are the most at risk and the areas where they need the most help. You're taking a couple of stomachs back with you. What's the plan for those? So they come back to my lab at Murdoch University with me and we'll cut all of them open and then identify the prey if we can to species level. And then we're hoping to compare diet between sort of farmland or bushland to see whether introduced species are being eaten more frequently in one area or the other. Murdoch University PhD candidate Natalie Grassi ending that report from Andrew Chounding. And if you search ABC Rural and Fox Cull, you'll be able to see some of the images of exactly what's inside the fox's stomachs. Two minutes to one to the market, 6,705 sheep and lambs were penned for sale at the Catanning Market today. That is down 3,759 from last week. Tracy Kilner, take us through the market details. Numbers were down for a small yarding of 6,705 with vehicle movement bans due to the extreme hot weather hindering numbers to the yard. The yarding was dominated by lightweight lambs with pens suitable for air freight lifting $5 to $15 with processor and feeder competition. Trade weights gained marginally while heavy lambs eased on last week. New mutton eased $8 in all categories with heavy weight sales to $40 while live export lifted heavy mature weathers to $51 Hoggets to 47 and rams to $45 a head. Very plain pens, once again sold to minimum values with no bids and no interest from buyers. Lightweight lambs under 16 kilos carcass weight sold to $71, while weights under 18 kilos carcass weight sold from $69 to $88. Trade weights returned 95 to 108 and heavy weights sold to $131 a head. Hoggets were sought by live export, local and interstate processors, with merino weathers selling to $47 and used to $36. Light plain hoggets once again sold from $2 to $25, quality dependent. Store used made from $1 to $18, medium weight sold to $34, heavy weights over 30 kilos carcass weight sold from $20 to $40 a head, 
Heavyweight weathers made from 45 to 51 and mature rams gained making from 15 to $45 a head. This has been Tracy Corner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you, Tracy. Just a couple of texts to finish off. Tom in Banu says, talk about the dry conditions. Banu has still had only 80 mils of rain since Easter last year. Thank you for passing that on, Tom. Hope you get some rain sometime soon. Great to talk to you today on the ABC right across WA. Time for the news, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.